Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm in the newsroom of the San Francisco Chronicle and joined by their editor-in-chief, Audrey Cooper. A graduate of Boston University, Audrey worked as a journalist at the Associated Press before joining the Chronicle as assistant metro editor. She progressed to editor-in-chief, becoming the first woman to hold a position in the paper's history and the youngest to fill a top post at a national paper in the whole of the US and has grown the paper's readership to 35 million. Audrey, thank you for joining me. Thank you. So, Audrey, when you were appointed editor-in-chief, the Chronicle was shedding staff and losing million. How did you turn it around? I mean, 35 million is an incredible, credible reach. Yeah, it is an amazing number. It's certainly more than ever read the Chronicle in, you know, what we call the quote-unquote good old days. Um, you know, we we were at a point about 10 years ago when we were losing about a million dollars a week at the in the newsroom. And we did a lot of things to turn that around, not the least of which is we made what was a very difficult decision at the time, which was to ask our subscribers to pay more. And of course, the way newspapers had worked for literally hundreds of years before that, all the way back to Joseph Pulitzer and the Penny Wars, was to give it away for free and then tell advertisers you had this very large base. But advertisers got a lot smarter. The internet helped them get a lot smarter. So they quickly understood that just because you paid $20 because some kid came to your front door and tried to sell you a newspaper subscription didn't mean you were reading it. And we made a gamble that now seems very obvious but wasn't at the time to um, jack up our subscription prices and our subscribers stayed with us. And and it's really important that we did that when we did, because since then we have not had any layoffs and we've actually grown the newsroom. Whereas our competitors, not only uh, in the Bay Area, but nationwide have had the exact opposite problem. Well, frankly, good journalism has to be paid for. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You know, reporters expect health care and working computers and to be able to feed their families. It's outrageous, I know. But no, it's it's very important. It it doesn't come for free. And just because you have a Wi-Fi connection doesn't make you a journalist. I think that's important for people to remember. Where do you want to take the paper next? Oh, that is an excellent question. I mean, I think we have we routinely punch way above our weight for what we are. Um, we've uh, for the last several years we've been named the best newspaper in California, which is you know the biggest states in the country. Um, and I think what has been most rewarding for our staff and for me personally is to do to double down on our, our investigative reporting. We added we added back our investigative team two years ago, and it really has reinvigorated the newsroom. And we've done, you know, I, I had a tweet storm at the beginning of 2018 about all the things we uncovered last year and all the things that made the world that we live in safer. And I just, that's, that's the kind of community I want my family to live in is one where people have a media that's sticking up for their rights and what's best for the community. It's an incredibly brave thing to do from a commercial point of view, isn't it? Because investigative reporting is very expensive and sometimes can lead into cul-de-sacs where you investigate someone turns out they weren't doing anything wrong at the time. Yeah. I would say the, um, Probably the most of our investigative reporting has been directed at uh, Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which is uh, the major utility in Northern California. Not only were they responsible for the explosion in San Bruno where a gas line exploded and, and 
people literally burned to death in their living rooms. Uh, but they also are increasingly being looked at as the source of our recent Northern California uh, wildfires that killed, I think we're up to 44 people died in those fires. Um, and and PG&E has always been one of the Chronicle's number one advertisers. So it's it's remarkable that we still have independent media where my bosses don't even blink an eye when I say we have another story about PG&E doing something wrong and they don't say oh man can we stop can we stop messing with this advertiser they say great can't wait to read it proper journalism with old school integrity from the good old days as you would say well yeah from the, and, and I think that's something that people don't really understand about our industry is that you know I did not become a journalist to make more money for the Hearst Corporation and I guarantee there's nobody in that newsroom that would say that either and I don't think there's anyone in the corporation that would say our number one goal is that our number one goal is to represent our community to make it safer and to improve public discourse it is something that's founded you know, it's it's in the very fabric of what our company does and, and part of our culture. And when you look at the what's happening in the rest of the world today, the major distributors of news are tech companies, tech platforms that don't have that as part of their ethos. And, you know, I, I've been called naive by some for saying that that is a major problem with how news is d- distributed now. Facebook is not interested in whether you're a smarter voter. They do not care. They care how much time you spend on their platform. The so-called dwell time. Right. That's all they care about. And I think their recent decisions are uh, emblematic of that. And it's not just Facebook. It's also Twitter. It's Google to to some extent. The, these companies that feed off of the distribution of news don't have the same principles that we do. And and I think that's important for people to understand. I mean, yours is an incredible success story, but do you not think journalism is under threat as never before, not just from clickbait websites, uh, ad blockers and so on, but you've also got a president who is poisoning the well of journalism itself. Everything is fake news that doesn't suit him. Yeah, I, I guess... Uh, you know we're we're a little privileged to be in our San Francisco bubble here. Uh, you know, less than ten percent of the city of San Francisco voted for President Trump. So you've got to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, <laughs> that's true. But I I find it actually quite invigorating um, because I've never had so many people ask me like, Audrey, how are you doing? And we really support you. Like that never happened before. So I think in this odd way, it's provoked a civic discussion about the value of what we do. And for for a long time, my predecessors, and not just at the Chronicle, but everywhere, I, I think we didn't do a good enough job about talking about what our value was and promoting it. It was, let's, you know, we don't toot our own horn. And I say, screw that. I'm going to toot it all over San Francisco because it's important that people value what we do and understand what we do and make it um, a priority to engage with what we produce. When you took over, you said you jacked up the subscriptions. Did that change the nature of your relationship with your readers? Because you were saying to them, if you value this, you have to literally value it in terms of paying more dollars and cents. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it, if you look at our numbers, obviously the the overall paper circulation went down. I mean, that which we fully anticipated it would. But we have an extremely loyal 
subscriber base now that has been pretty flat over the years, whereas other newspapers who haven't done this have just seen it erode and erode and erode. So um, we were really clear with people about why we were doing that. We don't, we're in the black now. We don't make a lot of money. It's a pretty thin margin. You're not making a loss though, which is incredible. No, yeah, red ink is bad. (laughs) They didn't teach me that in journalism school, but it it turns out it's an important lesson. (laughs) Um, Red ink is bad. So, you know, I, I, um, I think as long as we can stay in the black and we are still producing journalism that our subscribers want, um, we're in a really good position. And I just wish that there were more companies, more journalism companies in the United States that were in similar positions. What else was top of your to-do list when you took over the job as editor-in-chief? Because you mentioned the commitment to investigative journalism. You mentioned changing the nature of your relationship with the subscribers, i.e. asking them to pay more. But I imagine there'll be a lot of other people listening to this podcast that quite want to copy your your toolkit of methodologies if they want to turn a paper around. What else did you do? Well, I, there were really two things that were at the top of my list. The first was to do a better job in the community talking about what we did and to, and to be more outward facing and to have a media that San Francisco would be proud of um, or at least took some some pride in like you, you I don't want you to agree with us all the time and I don't want you to think the news is happy all the time I want you to be enraged and emboldened and aggravated and and gleeful and everything else when you read the, the news whole of emotions. Uh, every emotion yeah. I want you to get when you when you read the news because I think that's healthy um, and we and we need to explain to people that that's our role in the community and the second thing that was really important was the culture of the newsroom um, I think I'm I'm I'll admit I'm a little biased, but I think we have one of the happiest newsrooms in America because I expect excellence from this newsroom and I expect them to be okay with change. Changes, you know, journalists don't like change very much. We like getting things right. And um, and as such, it breeds a sort of conservatism. Um, and I don't mean politically. I mean, Justin, you don't like things to change because if things change, you might get something wrong. And that's absolutely the wrong thing to do you know in this day and age that we live in so we i needed to increase the ambition of the newsroom and also make it a change positive non-toxic place to work and you know i i won't lie in in the beginning there was i had a lot of doubt whether i would be successful at that but i think now you can go out there and everybody will say yeah at the beginning we weren't so sure about some of these things but wow you know it actually turned out that it worked it was quite a courageous thing to do because it it could have failed any genuinely bold decision where you're going to try and effect genuine change like you have done has the potential to go wrong and uh, it could have gone wrong I I guess so but when you're losing a million dollars a week and everybody else is you know shut it like what what's the alternative I mean, the alternative is if we don't do anything. And I said on the day I was named editor that I would not be the last editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. And damn it, I am not going to be the last editor of the Chronicle. There will be many after me, and this newspaper will be around to print my obituary. Well, we hope that that's many, many years from <laughs> me now, too, Me too, <laughs> you, you obviously won't be reading it unless you've, you've copy-checked it in advance and then put it in the vault. That's an idea. <laughs> we could do that. How have you grown the audience to 35 million? I mean, that's incredible as well. Yeah, well, that, that's, our, that's our, all of our platforms, our apps, our e-edition. Our, we have two websites um, and, and our paper, and it, and it fluctuates between about 30 to 35, given the news of a month. But we have a really uh, unique situation in that we have a free website, SFGate, 
and it's very large um, and it's a very national website that has I would say a little it's a lot buzzier there's a little bit more entertainment there is definitely some there is definitely real news in there but you'll also find out about you know celebrities and and other things that are just you know interesting to people and it's a low barrier of entrance for people it's quite upbeat isn't it uh yeah and and approachable yeah it's very approachable and I would say it's for people who aren't interested in reading the 10,000 word investigation on something you know and that's okay. I, I don't, I think that's good. If if you're not interested in, you know, reading everything we produce, SFGate is for you. And then we have sfchronicle.com, which is our premium website that's subscriber based or subscriber focused. Um, there's a metered paywall on it, but really we want subscribers to be reading this website. And that's where you get um, what I call journalism with the capital J. It's our columnists, our analysis, our investigations. Um, you know, I, I don't like to use the word smarter news, but that's kind of a colloquial way of putting it. And they have, so, to some extent, the audiences overlap, but really they're quite different. And what is very encouraging to me is that the audience on sfchronicle.com is actually younger than the free website, which I just, I'm totally excited about this. And most studies that I've read have suggested that the millennials and, and younger people know you have to pay for news. It's this older generation where we were giving away newspapers for free and, and, and everything. They're the ones that are still very resistant to this. But the next generation, they've gotten the memo. So I, I think there's a lot of encouraging things. But we have a very diverse um, amount of products to give people and we monetize each one of them pretty effectively do you have a typical reader in mind when you when you think of a reader do they live in the bay do they uh, you you mentioned that it is regarded as a national newspaper as well how does that work in terms of the percentage of people overall that live local to here and how many people are reading it in denver and in new york and in little rock arkansas well we we are a northern california based Newspaper, so we're very regional in what news we choose to go after. Um, certainly, we have a Washington bureau, but we're doing stories out of Washington that have that are viewed through a California prism. So we probably do more, you know, environment-based stories, for example, than you might see in the middle of the country, where maybe people aren't quite as interested in what happens to the oceans, for example. Um, so. So we have a lot of readers around the country, but they're very interested in the San Francisco point of view of news, which is very tech-focused, which is uh, very progressive, um, and it's just a different way. Uh, you know, it's a very West Coast way of reading the news. So um, my typical reader, if I was to describe it, would be, I call them my people. So you're, you know, in your mid to late 30s. You're, you maybe just had a kid. You're starting to develop your career. Maybe you bought property. These are the people who are developing a civic consciousness. And those are the people that historically newspapers went after to sell newspaper subscriptions to. It's just now they don't want it delivered to their front porch anymore. They want it delivered in a different way. But but those are the people that I really want to, you know, snare and drag into the Chronicle family. San Francisco encompasses the, the kind of wealthy beneficiaries of the tech boom, but there's also a huge homelessness crisis, which we, you know, I've seen for myself been here. Do you think it's the Chronicle's job to kind of bridge those two worlds? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think homelessness is the 
the greatest tragedy of this tech boom. Um, and, it, and, and certainly it was around before tech came to San Francisco, too. But the wealth inequality is what I think 100 years from now we'll look back on this period and say, how did they not get a grasp on that? And how the Chronicle has decided to tackle that, I think, has been a very innovative approach to media in this day and age, because we organized what we called the San Francisco Homeless Project. And this was, uh, we started about two, two and a half years ago now, but I, um, I w- one day I was thinking, you know, how, how do we, how do we get to this story? We can't write any more front page stories. Like this is, it's just contributing to the noise around homelessness. And I thought, well, I have a lot of friends who are journalists and I know all the editors. So maybe if I got all the other media around this and we all organized a single day of mass coverage where all you could see was stories about the causes and solutions to homelessness we could actually make a dent and I was hoping for like 15 media outlets um, on the first day of our coverage we had 83 wow um, and it was it was remarkable and it just it was great because first of all it it spurred a lot of change. The politicians can maybe ignore one of us, but they can't ignore all of us. And more importantly, in some ways, I think it gave this community pride around their media. Um, When at that time in particular, you know, if you asked what, you know, the least respected profession was, we were down there with trial lawyers and, you know, cable cable repairmen or something like we were way far down there and I think in San Francisco if you ask the average person what do you think about the Chronicle now they'll say yeah they totally you know are doing things in a new way and that homeless project was really um, the start of it for us. Cosmopolitan magazine including you in their list of 50 fearless women did you take that as a compliment? <laughs> yeah I, you know uh, there's a Marissa Mayer quote that I read once that said uh, you should go to work every day a little bit scared and I just I love that quote because it's so true nobody talks about that like I'm afraid every day that you know is this enough are we doing the right things the enormity of the responsibility that we have to preserve fair and independent journalism for this community is a major task. So, I mean, fearless, I don't think anyone's fearless, but I aspire to be someday. Kind of feel the fear and do it anyway. I think yeah. there's a book called that, isn't there? Yeah, probably. What drew you to San Francisco? Because you, you're, you're from Kansas originally, is that right? I am from Kansas. Um, my uh, husband and I went to school on the East Coast, and then he got um, into a PhD program in Berkeley. But I had applied to be an intern at the San Francisco Chronicle every year of college and never got a call back. So uh, when we we got in a Geo Metro, which I don't know if you know what a Geo Metro is, but is like the yuckiest car, tiny little tin can that was teal green and we drove across the country and we got to San Francisco with like our two bags and a giant like one of those giant old TVs that like is as big as the car itself and he's and my husband said um, so where do you want to go first and I said I want to go to Fifth and Mission and see the Chronicle building and this was probably seven years before I actually weaseled my way into a paying job at the Chronicle but it wow. was it was always a place that I wanted to come to and did you look at it I mean how ambitious were you then did you look at the building and think I want to be the editor that one day no I definitely didn't although uh, I no, that never occurred to me in fact it didn't occur to me even um, when I was the number two here for a while it just it seemed like a really I don't know that was a job that like old people took to you know when you were like 60 and you got that job it was a it was a big deal back then um and then our our editor retired 
And I thought, oh, well, they'll hire somebody else. And then I kept doing the job and then I kept doing it. And I'm like, no, they're going to hire me. <laughs> so it was something that like I, I got accustomed to more than aspired to, I would say. And when that kind of moment came that you thought that you you were going to do the job, did you like it? Did you think, wow, this is I actually do want to do it? I have the best job in the world. Like, really, this is this is the best job. I cannot imagine another job that would be more fun than mine because I get to live in what I think is the best city in the country. I have a newsroom that is, you know, grinding it out every day and happy and doing great work. And it's the best job ever. What's a typical week like for you? There is no such thing as a typical week. Everyone always says yes. that. Uh, that sorry, oh, I'm, I'm cliched already. Um, the question I, is cliche. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, I I work between sixty and hundred hours a week. So you're a part timer then? So, yeah, I'm, I do things pretty halfway. Um, so yeah, I work a lot. I get here usually at about eight to eight thirty. Um, and then I and I I have I've decided to set limits on how many nights or mornings I'll be away. So I'll only I I, I have a maximum of four nights away at, at, during the week, so I can at least hit bedtime for my five year old three nights a week. Um, so structured family time access. I try I to because otherwise I could do things every single night, and I'm so passionate about what I do that I I would let myself do that unfortunately so you're disciplined to take yourself away from it <laughs> so you can be a mother I have to, I have to have rules for myself I'm not somebody who does something in moderation very well I I either go I, I usually just go crazy unless I have rules and that includes work and carbs like those two things I have to have very strict rules for myself exactly <laughs> me too carbs are like the greatest thing ever they are they're the only thing that matters in life as far as I'm concerned yeah that's why I have to say no carbs <laughs> Now, you, you also hired a cannabis consultant to, to cover what is now the legal marijuana industry in this state um, w- through the Green State website. What are they like? Are they just completely stoned out of their heads all the time? Do they never do they miss deadlines? No, no, no. He's he's very responsible. I mean, you know, cannabis in California and the West Coast in general is really interesting because the... I think, you know, there are there are the straight laced people among us that maybe did it in college and then, you know, grew up or didn't have access to it or whatever and didn't really fall into it. And then the day that it was voted to be recreationally legal, it's so interesting because I was I was at a at a kindergarten event and all the other parents smoking cannabis. No, <laughs> that might have made it more fun though. It no, no, made no. a splash. It was in the morning. <laughs> no, I was at kindergarten this. cannabis. That's the next the next market. We have verticals for everything. Exactly. Um, no, I was talking to the other kindergarten parents, and it's so interesting because these same people who would talk about their trips to wine country or a Pinot or a Cabernet were now talking about cannabis. And it was this new sort of frontier that was suddenly not taboo in San Francisco anymore. And I started thinking, you know, we have Wine Spectator, these amazing verticals that are experts in this, you know, in that industry, in the wine industry. And it seems just natural to me that eventually cannabis will get there too. And how do we become the lifestyle, you know, brand for that? Um, you know, it's a lot different than wine because it's still not fully legal. It's not federally legal. So uh, you, you can know, only pay in cash, can't you? And you yeah, you, there's a lot of banking problems around it. Um, you can't take it across state lines. There's a lot of questions about whether federal agents could 
cracked down here so far. They really haven't, but um, certainly the attorney general would like if they did. So, so it's a lot different than the wine industry in that way, and it's a very nascent industry. So whether or not we'll be able to sustain the advertiser's support for it, I think is unclear. But it's another one of those things that if you don't try, then you're going you're going to end up 10 years from now thinking, gosh, what, I wish we had seen that coming. But it's a multifaceted story as well, because it's not just uh, the consumers of cannabis. But as you mentioned there, there's a state's rights issue. Mm-hmm. There's a business and emerging markets issue. You have to cover it from all angles. Yeah, regulation and uh, yeah, what even what individuals can do legally in their own house varies from where you live, which city you live in, because it's it's really a very municipally regulated industry. But you know, so there there's a lot to cover there, and now the whole West Coast is cannabis legal too. So so there's this growing acceptance and awareness of this um, industry, and it's it's just really fascinating to watch it stumble along basically the chronicle's branching out now and and making documentary films where did that come from and what are your hopes for it yeah we did a documentary called last man standing and it was a a feature-length documentary that went to um, about a dozen film festivals around the world and it was it told the story of our long-term AIDS survivors. So AIDS in San Francisco killed, at the height of the epidemic, one out of every 40 people. One out of every 40 people in the city died of AIDS. It's just a remarkable statistic. It's so big you almost can't get your head around it. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I I can't even I, I was I was just a baby when this happened, but I, I can't even imagine the scars that that left on the city at the time. Bus drivers driving around with masks on because you didn't know how how this disease was was transferred. And what happened to a lot of people who got AIDS is they saw all their friends dying very rapidly after after acquiring it. And it was a, it was a death sentence. You were told, like, you have AIDS, you're going to die. So what would you do? If you were told you were going to die, you would probably not go to work every day. You probably would not go to school anymore. You wouldn't have long-term relationships in the same way. So these people dropped out of society, and some of them survived. And now AIDS, because we have um, we have PrEP and we have so many testing things and people know about it, it's largely an elderly person's disease now. So we did um, the story about what happens when you live your whole life waiting to die and you don't. And it's a very troubling story. So to accompany the the written piece and the photos, we also did um, a feature-length documentary. And to me, it was a very exciting thing for us to do because it showed we aren't just newspaper people. We have something to say about our community, and we can say it on a number of different platforms. And I guarantee you the thousands of people who saw that film never read <laughs> never read the piece that we did in print. And so we reached totally new people with this, which I just think is really exciting as a journalist. It's interesting that you, you mentioned that, because I was thinking about San Francisco as an area and as a town. I mean, I know it's easy said that, you know, a lot of towns are unique, but San Francisco seems to be the most unique. No, we're, we're super weird. In the whole of the U.S., it's just an amazing one-off, and that must feed into your coverage of, of the, the area and your journalism. Yeah, well, you know, I will bore you with a brief history lesson, but San Francisco in the years before the gold rush and just five years before the gold rush, there were 350 people living in the city or 400. 
the gold rush happens. Gold is discovered in 1848 and at the end of 1848 and 1849, when the gold rush is really at its heyday, 25,000 people migrate to San Francisco. It's the largest peacetime migration of people still in world history. So if you think about what happens to a city when it goes from nothing to holy cow, we're a metropolis and a financial center of the West Coast. Overnight. Overnight, and frankly, with mostly men, young men, who came to earn their millions. Now, first of all, I don't need to point out the parallels to the time we live in now with all of the tech bros coming to San Francisco to earn their millions. But it got a reputation from the very beginning as a very body and naughty sort of town where everything goes. And it was diverse right off the bat, too. So most cities grow from like village to town to, you know, they have this slow growth. San Francisco was a boom right off the bat. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that still holds true today. You don't come here unless you're okay with some of the quirkier parts of San Francisco. If you're not okay with our quirkiness, we have some very nice suburbs for you to live in. Other towns are available. Other towns are available. But like what I like to say about San Francisco is that we are intolerant of intolerance. Which is, you know, unless you're Probably a Trump fan, and then, yeah, yeah. yeah, unless you're a Trump fan, and then they might be a little more intolerant of you. But yeah, a lot of anything goes in this city. Now, you've said that you committed to, I was about to say reading your own obituary, but I didn't mean that. The obituary being in the paper after you've gone and therefore continuing. What advice would you give to someone starting out their journalism career that wants to be the next editor of the Chronicle? Oh, man, that would make me so happy. I wish more people wanted my job, to be honest with you. Um, I I think, you know, journalism right now is such an interesting time for, for young people. The The worries that I have is that they they are so excited about the glamour isn't quite right, but the power and the influence you can have, and they forget about the basics of why they're doing it. And to get the story right and to realize the incredible power you have over people's lives, you can you can ruin somebody's life or, or definitely make a very bad part of their history by getting something wrong or even getting something right and choosing to print it. So, you know, I think the power and the responsibility are, is sometimes lost on the newer generation that just gets very excited about what they're doing instead of why they're doing it. And do you think there will always be the same amount of people in each generation that have that curiosity and have that dedication to change? Or do you think that things are changing generationally, that people are getting sidetracked by the spectacle of clickbait and the apps and, and forgetting the, the, the reason why they're doing it? Um, I, You know, I think there are always going to be true believers. Um, whether or not they're cynical enough to become journalists, I sometimes worry about, but that might just be me getting older and grouchier. I mean, there's a certain amount of skepticism that you have to bring and to everything. And it, like, it, whenever people say, like, well, which political candidate, who do you like for mayor? I say, I dislike them all equally. And I like them all equally. Like, that's not my job. My job is to give you, the voter, information about what they stand for and what they've done and what they likely will do so that you can make an informed decision. Is there something about the character of a, what I would call a proper journalist, what you're talking about there, that, that, you know, they are cynical, but in the best possible sense, that it's born of a sense of justice and a sense of, you know, sunlight being the best disinfectant, holding people to account. Oh, I see, you, talk, you talked about a character of a journalist, and I thought you were going to go to the drinking character. <laughs> I, I was going to do that. <laughs> that was the, next. The, <laughs> someone wants to describe themselves as an optimistic fatalist. 
Oh, oh, yeah, I guess so. You know, it's funny. The the longer I do this, the more um, faith I have in humanity, strangely enough, because you see how bad things can get and how many people work to fix it and how good most people are. I mean, most people are not corrupt. I, every time I say that on a panel of uh, political consultants, they all look at me like I'm crazy. But I really do believe most people want to make the world a better place. Now, they, maybe some of us want to work harder at it than others, but but I do I do believe that, and I do believe also that when people act badly, whether it's you know whether it's massive corruption that kicks people out of their homes or causes pipelines to explode or fires to break out or even just people acting badly on the street. Like, whatever that is in that spectrum, we have a responsibility to call it out because we all live here together, and 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 that shouldn't happen. Does it frustrate you, though, that there seems to be an increasing polarity in society these days, certainly in the UK, where I'm from, and here in America? Uh, you know, it, uh, it's almost expressed by the, the two competing news feeds that people have in Facebook. There's the Trump supporter that have all these conspiracy theories and their way of looking at them, and, and then there's the Obama and the Hillary Clinton supporters, and they, they, they look at things completely differently, and almost self-censor now the two news feeds mm-hmm. are so different from one another that it seems almost irreconcilable well this is part of my criticism about the motivations of the tech companies that are allowing that to happen like never mind the fake news that they're uh, that they're allowing to cheaply promote and spread and the you know the twitter bots that twitter still seems to be reluctant to crack down on um, so, so yes, but I, I think, you know, this country has always been polarized. It just hasn't been quite as obvious that we are as polarized. What bothers me a little bit more is the seeming lack of ideology that we have nowadays. Like I was raised in one of the reddest parts of Kansas and people there would not have very much in common with your modern day San Franciscan, but they did have a consistent way of viewing the world and now I think people are generally inconsistent about the prism through which they view politics. It's a lot more self-serving and a rush to judgment, and it's not fully informed. And one of my favorite things to tell you know, audiences where I speak is, I fervently believe you do not have the right to an uninformed opinion. And most people's opinions are uninformed. And until we get to a point where people are willing to realize that, I, I really fear for for our democracy. As you were saying that, I was thinking about the philosopher Bertrand Russell, because he said the problem with the world is, is that the unintelligent are cocksure, whereas the intelligent <laughs> are full of doubt. That's so true. I think a lot of people are very intellectually lazy nowadays. And I, you also see it even when we get we print you know, a controversial opinion piece online or, or in print, and people say, oh, how dare you print that? And it's like, it's just ideas. Calm down, everybody. Like, why are you so upset? You don't have, we didn't say you had to agree with it, but how do you possibly know what you think unless you understand the other side? I just don't understand that at all. Like, how, how can you be okay with forming an opinion like that? It seems to be a rush to be offended as well. Like, I, I, I read a lot of op-eds, and even the ones that I vehemently disagree with, I enjoy reading it, because if my arguments are strong enough in my own mind, then they ought to be tested against the opposing side. Yeah, I, I totally I totally agree. It's, it's a... I think it's a lack of intellectual curiosity that we have. And and I also think that people are very afraid of giving even a little bit of light to anything that they could see 
uh, becoming racist or, or offensive to um, to groups of people who are struggling. I think that's a real fear. You know, if if we were to just take it out of modern day times and go back to like, you know, the not the rise of the Nazis, should those have ideas have been accepted into political discourse because they were and then look what happened but but shutting them down nowadays seems very counterproductive too so I think we have to have more faith in ourselves that we can entertain ideas without becoming the worst of ourselves it's very difficult when you have a global tech company I mean for example we had an executive Matt Britton on recently from Google and he was saying that um, you know, he's responsible for Google in Europe, Middle East and Africa and say Holocaust denial, whilst it's incredibly un- unpleasant to say the least and factually wrong. You know, there's First Amendment here in the UK. We have freedom of speech. But Holocaust denial in France and Germany is a criminal offence. Yeah. Isn't that so interesting? It's uh, the the different media policies of of. European countries, I just find absolutely interesting, and and you know better than anyone how what the rise that gives to different media cultures throughout the world. I just think I couldn't live in a place where you couldn't say something that's even repugnant. I I just you know I I like I said maybe I'm what what did you call it a fatalistic optimist a optimistic fatalist maybe that's what I am but I I just believe that people who have crazy ideas if we really prosecute them in a fair way will be exposed as having crazy ideas last couple of questions then because i'm aware you're incredibly busy and thank you for making the time by the way how do you enjoy your time as editor as opposed to being a journalist now some people disagree with the premise of the question itself and say that they're the same job but do you do you think of yourself as an editor now do you edit other people's work are you involved in like management meetings and hr and things like that or do you still make time to write and like check copy how, you know what is what is your actual job <laughs> what do you what, yeah, what do, you do you do all yeah, day exactly. State <laughs> um, your business. you know it's funny we use uh, slack as an internal oh, communication we well. tools. it's both saved and ruined our yes, lives exactly um and 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 uh it has like a little thing that you know, like who are you under it and it's and mine says i go to meetings so you don't have to <laughs> and i do think there's some truth to that but you know i i was a good editor um and i was a good reporter but I wasn't the best there ever was. And I think I could be the best there ever was as an editor because one of my favorite things to do is translating the newsroom's interests, desires, and needs to people who are not journalists. And that's not very many people want to do that or can do it very well. And it's really important for the newsroom to have an advocate who can do that both internally to the company, but externally as well. I mean, I I do still edit um, certainly our major projects. None of our big stuff goes in without me going through it with a fine tooth comb. Um, But I'm not, I'm not on a day to day basis, elbow deep in copy at six o'clock at night. I'm, I've got lots of other things to do. And more importantly, I have editors who are very good at doing that, and I trust them implicitly. So is that the main job then, is as leader of this business, in a sense, is to, is to hire the right people and create the right culture? Oh, absolutely. Hiring people is... I, I 
I, I like to say that one of my superpowers is hiring people because a few bad hires and things go south very quickly. This I'll is this, not myself. This is a small family and you get a couple of crazy cousins in it and it just ruins Thanksgiving. You know, it's it, it really is that way. Always got to count the fingers and toes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no mutants in the news. Yeah, room. but a couple of really amazing hires change it for the better, too. So I've had the ability to hire probably since I became editor about 80 people and I would say with the exception of like one or two people they have all been extraordinary journalists and have really helped transform the culture of the newsroom but what's your secret sauce there because everyone interviews well I've always found oh I don't think that's true at all oh no not at all I I think I'm a really hard interviewer anybody who's listening to this should know like it is intimidating to come in luckily I'm doing the interview (laughs) you're not hoping are you looking for a job (laughs) maybe Uh, one day (laughs) maybe one day it's a small world um no i don't think people interview well at all and what i'm looking for is first of all no jerks i do not do drama lazy or stupid because i really think those three things you can't fix and luckily not very many stupid people come through like we we don't have that problem lazy you can generally suss out from people you know or their body of work and toxic i think you can tell right off the back too i i i have a sixth sense for that and those people we we've had some journalists who have been incredibly just genius investigative journalists genius and just complete jerks and i don't care how talented you are but if you're not if you're a jerk you're not going to work here well, then I've got no chance. <laughs> thank you for giving me the heads up. Now I don't so even have know. to bother with the application, but thank you very much. Well, last question then. And uh, this is a bit weird because we've dwelled on your obituary a few times. You actually mentioned it. But... You're making me feel like I should go to the doctor <laughs> yeah. or something. So decades upon decades from now, what do you want to be in it? What would you say will be your achievements and what will it say, where will it say you, you fell down? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, well, I think it would say that I could be probably a polarizing force because as you can probably tell I'm a little opinionated and very uh, forceful about what I think we need to do Um, and that doesn't you know not everybody digs that uh, which is okay Um, I try to be a nice person but definitely there are people who like me and there are people who are wrong that's so (laughs) I like that I'm gonna (laughs) use that Um, and I hope it says that she became editor at a key time and helped preserve uh, an institution on the cusp of its 150th birthday for the next 150 years. Well, Audrey, let there be another 150 years after that. Amen. Thank you ever so much for your time. It's been hugely enjoyable. Thank you. A Right Angles podcast in association with Big Things Media. Big Things Media.